Hi everyone, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the following podcast belong solely to the host and its contributors. They are not necessarily the views of our employers, organizations, committees, or other group or individual. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Joseph Whitney. This is Brewing with BIM. Where we talk about construction processes, technology, BIM, and beer. Take a sip of beer to keep my uh, my vocal cords, you know, limber. <laughs> <laughs> what are you drinking? I am drinking a Northern Row um, Butcher, which is one of their, well, it's their Pilsner, and uh, it's delicious. Northern Row is one of the many breweries here in Cincinnati, and Joe, that's where you and I actually met up when you were in town. Yeah, I was just about to say that. That building is phenomenal. I am, I love the the old details, how it's still there. Um, you said it was like, like they put the ice in the basement at one point in time, mm-hmm. uh, the, how the, the, uh, equipment is now furniture. It's just a beautiful bar. Yeah. They did such a nice Very job. And, and, and that's, that's what I love about the breweries here in town. They're, they, they have to differentiate themselves and, you know, they do it different ways with their food or, or with their architecture. Um, and these guys just, they, they had a great build, a great palette to work with. And uh, they have lots of expansion plans. There's there's five stories to this building, and they want to keep going up and doing more things as, as time goes on. Oh, man, I love it. Well, we'll chat more about that in just a second, because uh, I love the Cincinnati brew scene. You turned me on to it, and I'm obsessed with it now. I got that book. I, got, I downloaded, that, downloaded that Kimmel book, and I'm actually rereading it for the second time because I blew through it. it I missed so many things. It, it's a great book. Um, that said, Dave, let me ask you, man, what are you drinking? Ah, this, uh, this episode... I've steered a little bit more towards whiskey, and uh, I, I, you know, those past episodes we did uh, with, uh, what was it, the bourbon bullets, and uh, I decided to put a bourbon bullet in a whistle pig six year, and it was an oak bullet, and I did the same with a, uh, oh gosh, uh, with another bottle, I can't think of the name, oh, Elijah Craig, there it is, Elijah, Elijah Craig, Craig. Yeah. yeah, and I, I've let them sit for a little bit over a month now, I think we're at like, five or six weeks and uh i've got a a glass of that uh whistle pig six year on the, uh, on the rocks it's man it's awesome i love those bourbon bullets it's kind of insane how it changes the profile of a whiskey i think it's awesome well, the weather's uh been been nice here man so uh, i i normally tip spend spend my time drinking in the the whiskeys in the in the colder weather oh yeah we're still we're still decently chilly here in, in indiana we like mother nature's teasing me again and i think we're in the i think we're in the 50s today but i mean we 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 were 50s uh like a few days ago and then it went straight back down into like the 20s and 30s and then she comes back up again and i'm waiting for her to just smack me back down I'm, i mean i'm excited for spring i can tell you that i got the mustang out i'm like oh man i'm i'm ready for it let's go <laughs> Well, I think the forecast is going to be more of the same tomorrow and even maybe a little bit warmer. So we're going to have a little tease of spring this week. And awesome. all I know is that Wednesday happy hours is uh, going to be outside on a patio somewhere here in town. <laughs> yes. Heck oh. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I mean, I, I had this big plan to go to the store and get some some uh, Rhine or, you know, a Cincinnati beer. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of uh, the, the rosé from Rhine. Uh, I also like a few other beers that are made in, in Ohio, like Brewdog and stuff. But uh I had this plan to go to the store and I just I fell so short of of getting there time crunch today but so instead I'm drinking uh New Belgium's Voodoo Ranger. Ooh, that's a good beer. That, that is a good, good beer. Yeah. Oh, I like their Have you guys ever what was it the 1987 I think it was um oh gosh it was uh it was like the 80s style like Voodoo Ranger beer that they did and it was uh I think it was an IPA. And man, that was actually a, a lot. A lot of New Belgium beers I, I I really like, especially their browns too, like their porters or the brown ales. Mm-hmm. They do a really good job with those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that was always like when I first started getting into beer, and I won't tell you the age because it might not be legal. I think the statute of limitations is up, <laughs> but uh, that was New New Belgium uh, Fat Tire. You couldn't get it here in yeah. Ohio, and uh, so I'd I, we'd go ski, like you know, go out west to go skiing or camping. And we'd always try to find that to bring it back because everyone wanted, you know, Fat Tire was the, that was the beer. Man, that's funny. We all we always did a Yingling here. You mm-hmm. couldn't get Yingling here. And Yingling always had, I mean, they have really good beer. It's cheap. 
Um, so we always make runs for for Yingling. <laughs> My dad says that it was like that with Coors back when he was younger. That wow. Coors was was impossible to find, you know, east of the Mississippi. So he and his friends made Coors runs. They drive over, you know, they drive across to Chicago and and yep. uh, go a little bit farther and get Coors and take it back for all their friends. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh man. You know, speaking of the downtown areas, though, I mean, in all honesty, kind of going off your point there, like, I don't think there's anything better than enjoying the nice weather out in kind of a nice downtown area at a brewery, out in the patio, you know, in all reality, I've been to so many different cities and, you know, I've, I've lived uh, kind of in, in a lot of rural areas as well. And I could tell you there's. It's just awesome. It's an awesome kind of vibe, like the environment that you're in. You're seeing people like normal people just walking by. Everybody's driving. But it's it's just when the weather's beautiful, I don't think there's a better place to be than in either a patio or like a beer garden, uh, a rooftop garden kind of thing, just drinking some beer and enjoying the weather. I, I completely agree. And I have to say that's one of the best things that's come out of the pandemic is the rise of outdoor eating and dining. And everyone has to have an outdoor area now. And, uh, you know, first it was out of necessity and now it, it's become you know so popular that they've kept them. And here in Cincinnati, the the uh, city actually did a really cool uh, streetery program where they would, you know, basically sell off or you know rent off parking spots on the street that and then build platforms and restaurants could you know sign a lease and use those for extra seating outside and they're oh, that's they're permanent. awesome yeah and they they've blocked off a couple of different streets here in over the rhine around our office and made them permanent pedestrian streets with you know and, and usually they're high concentrations of restaurants and bars right there and so they use they kind of share the the alley to or the share the street for uh, extra seating and other events it's it's really cool awesome. what they've done yeah, I, I love that when the cities really get involved with that kind of scene, or, you know, really, really getting everybody, giving everybody a place to get out and enjoy the area. Uh, there's, I mean, honestly, there's, yeah, they, you you start seeing uh, like the patios set up, but also, I guess I want to say that a different environment, you know, especially when you get a lot of bars and restaurants, you know, that people are going to overflow from one area to the other. And mm-hmm. it, it, it does create kind of that nice, even when you got tourists, I mean, tourists are going to come and visit a lot of those places. But for a lot of people that are there living, I mean, it's just one of those nice areas you can go to. You can walk around. You can have a good time and go back home. Well, it's like I was taught in architecture school. It's the urban ideal. It's the everyone's mixed together doing different things, but, you know, able to interact. And then you get those spontaneous things that occur because you're just randomly interacting with people that you wouldn't otherwise normally see. And I think cities moved away from that for a long time with sub, you know, typical suburb, suburban developments. And we're really understanding the value of that and trying to recreate it. And it's, it's been pretty successful here in Cincinnati. That's awesome. I'm, I'm also a big, uh, a big push to the food truck movement. Oh Mm -hmm. man. I tell you what, when, Portland had a had an interesting setup. They did like a whole city block and it was just full of different different food trucks. And, you know, they had their little stands and they had tables all set up in nice areas or they'd even do, you know, in some cities you'd see an actual park set up with benches or kind of like um, like stadium style seating. And they'd have, um, oh, gosh, one park here in Indiana has the uh, all the water that shoots out of the ground and stuff for the kids. And they, they set up food trucks along. I think that's amazing mm-hmm. when you can really start to, you know, bring in a lot of different types of restaurants, different types of food, different types of people, and just give everybody an area to come in and enjoy. Um, I think in one place where I was growing up, they did they did a like a movie theater. They had a movie night on like Fridays and stuff. And you you'd come into this kind of common area. They also built like an ice skating rink, and you'd have several like breweries and restaurants set up. And it was just a it was a great thing to for that town to invest in because I feel like everybody who lived there and everybody who moved there really enjoy that, you know, ability to take their families or, you know, just go out and have a good time in the city. You know, we never did introductions. I wonder if we should do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, that's definitely a good point, man. I think we got really, <laughs> we got right into it. <laughs> Seth, man, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, dude? Yeah. Um, so 
My name is Seth Oakley. I work for, um, well, I'm a partner at MA Architects, I should I should say that. Um, but I've actually been uh, in, in the architecture world since uh, I came out of college in, at the University of Cincinnati uh, since 2003 and started at, at MA soon after that. Um, it was my second job out of college. And uh, at the at the firm, I grew in in my role from the you know basically the the entry level all the way up to starting the office down here in Cincinnati in 2014 and uh, becoming partner soon after that. Um, but uh, I've always had a passion for all things technology related drawing. I was the AutoCAD guru when I I started. People within the first year, you know, oh wow, this guy knows a lot about AutoCAD. Um, and then you know we started into our Revit journey in 2006, and I was in the first group to get trained in Revit. And uh, I was the first one to do projects in Revit for the firm, helped create our standard originally, and uh, have been involved in the management side of, of, of Revit for the company ever since. I'm also an architect, I should say that. <laughs> I'm a licensed architect <laughs> in several states. Uh, our firm, so our firm, um, MA Architects, is a uh, yeah, preeminent, I got to read the copy, pardon me, but I have to read the copy that our communications uh, director told me to read. So <laughs> just, just uh, you know, I'll, I'll preface it with that. No, it's it's really good. It's really good. Uh, you know, it's a really good succinct um, description of our firm, but we're a preeminent design firm in the Midwest with national presence, two offices, one in Columbus and one in Cincinnati, and projects in almost every state nationwide. Over 120 employees make up the firm. Uh, with uh, over the last year, a 20% increase in minority hires and 50% representation of female leaders in senior roles. That is a huge anomaly in the field of architecture. Um, we were founded in 1980, and we serve nine specialty sectors driven by studios of industry experts whose passion drives their focus on function, style, and trends relative to their market. We specialize in healthcare, workplace, industrial, retail, mixed use, multifamily residential, community and municipal projects, senior living, and higher education. But we also offer other services such as interior design, experiential design, video productions, sustainability, uh, futurism, which is uh, personalized data-driven research to drive the company's innovations, uh, strategic and master planning, technical services and code expertise, and change management. Uh, we are committed to creating spaces for change that support the firm's priorities, including mental wellness, diversity, equity, inclusion, and sustainability. We recognize together we are stronger using design solutions and strategy, strategies to create the best that's yet to come. And part of that mental health is, uh, you know, happy hours and other group activities um, that we do pretty <laughs> regularly um, here in Cincinnati. And, and really, we're inclusive. I, I don't, we don't just do happy hours. Um, we, we have several different events that uh, really make the difference. And uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of people like the culture here because of that. It's, it's so diverse and fun, but we also got our work done at the same time when we do cool projects. That's my summary. It sounds not as fancy as the the company one, but <laughs> no, dude, that's awesome. I like it a lot. And you know that culture is really important when you uh, you look at any business. Making it, I mean, that culture is huge. You can you know you look at a lot of businesses out there, and if they don't have that good culture, that good mental health awareness, that good you know family uh, work life balance, um, they, they can a lot of stuff can fall apart. You start losing employees, things like that. It's it's really important. Yeah, what what I've I learned when we came when we started the office in 2014, me and one other guy made the move from Columbus back to uh, or down to Cincinnati. Um, I'm originally from Northern Ohio, so it's not back to Cincinnati, but I did go to school here, um, so it did kind of feel like I was returning home in a way. Um, but it it was very purposeful that the culture was going to make or break the office, and uh, as we grew, we were very cognizant of creating a culture and letting the culture create itself. Um, with the people that that joined us. And uh, now that we're at 18 people, um, you know, the culture is of its own, but, uh, and, you know, different from the Columbus office, but it's still uniquely MA. And uh, it definitely is the best part of working here. Yeah, culture definitely makes the place, uh, you know, uh, I often chat with people that are always looking for, you know, BIM, BIM personnel and, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, you always got to ask them, why did the last person leave you? And, you know, what was going on? Did they get offered more money? And more often than that, I know the person that left. And, and usually it's because the culture wasn't fitting. Um, but when you find those companies, like those, you know, those companies that just make it all about their employees and make sure that everybody's having a great time. And yes, we're being productive. But at the end of the day, you know, we're all people, we're all humans. You know, we're not machines. Um, that's a uh, you know, that's a great place to be. And it sounds like you guys have a, a great uh, atmosphere. I, I can't personally speak 
you know, to MA, but I could speak about the time that you and I actually got together. And, uh, that was a fun meeting. So if anything, <laughs> um, you know, if that's a, if that's a, uh, you know, foretelling of, of how MA is, that's, that's a great place. <laughs> well, that's why I've been there for 18 years. So, oh man, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. planning to planning to, to stay here for, for, uh, for the rest of my career. So. That's hey awesome. man, you, you've made it. You're you're a partner, dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's there's a lot of responsibility that goes with that, but uh, no, it's been a it's been a great place to grow and and learn and and be the best architect I can be. I was gonna say that brings us to like a, a great point though. Um, talking about your 18 years specifically with this firm, how has technology changed um, or changed the way that you guys are doing things? Is it you know, has it made life easier, more connected? I mean, obviously, COVID's had its own impacts, uh, you know, wanting to connect and all that sort of stuff. But how how have you you came in at like the forefront of all this? And if my memory serves correctly, you were pretty instrumental in getting MA uh, on Revit and all that sort of stuff. Are you um, are you seeing benefits from it? Uh, is it really taking a life of its own? Just talk me through how some of that stuff's uh, affected you. <laughs> Man, that's a big question. Um, I, to go back, really, uh, to where I started from was hand drafting in high school. Um, we had a, a drafting teacher. I was doing my own drawings, technical drawings before that, based on what I was seeing in books and floor plans. But because uh, I always knew I wanted to be an architect. But um, so that that's I, I got the foundation in hand drawing. And even in in high school or in uh, college, they made us. Uh, they did not let us use computers. They wanted to make sure we had the fundamentals and foundations of hand drawing and line weights and, and that actual physical uh, connection, that physical movement and kinesthetic learning that you get with, uh, yeah, you can only get by doing that um, as we created our drawings. You know, eventually we were able to use computers and at the time there was, you know, some pretty good software, good rendering software, um, a lot different than what you have today. And obviously computers were a lot slower back then. So certain things took a lot more time. I remember running a, a lightscape lighting solution that said it was going to take about 96 hours to run so i just wow. planned for it and let it go and um and there was one mistake in the final rendering so <laughs> nothing a photoshop couldn't fix but uh um so you know coming from that background and uh coming out of school you know the world was was really autocad i know revit had exi um, existed as a company and, and was out there i wasn't aware of it when i first graduated um it wasn't too long after i was active in the Columbus AutoCAD user group, and uh, I would go to Autodesk events, that kind of thing. And I, I finally kind of figured, you know, learned about it and saw what it really was. And and I'll never forget this because it stuck with me since then. Um, it was described to me that if AutoCAD is the digital replication of the drawing board, then Revit and BIM in general is the digital replication of the construction site. And, you know, that always made sense to me. And Coming, you know, starting from that point, going into um, our first, you know, training sessions with it, I, I adopted it pretty quickly because I was, I wasn't thinking of it as a drafting program. I was thinking of it as we're modeling real life and extracting the data from it to get our drawings. And, you know, that's the number one struggle that a lot of people have with Revit when they're making that switch. So going into it, we knew we were going to have that. They, they told us that, and we definitely experienced it as the firm, you know, made the switch over. But, uh, you know, we, we made, you know, I, we brought, like me and one other guy brought Revit to the owners of the company attention, like, hey, this is, this is coming. And, you know, we either have to be prepared and make the jump to uh, stay ahead of the curve, or you know we could get left behind. There's going to be a lot of project types that are are going to require this eventually, and you know governments, universities lead the way. And at that time, we weren't doing a ton of that kind of work, but we did it and knew that if we wanted to continue, we're going to have to just keep up. So strategically, we made the decision that the industrial sector, kind of the the tilt up concrete buildings, you know, no, like we weren't doing the factory, you know, the components and all that kind of stuff. We were doing the shell buildings that the factories go into, um, you know, distribution center, storage, any of that kind of stuff, because they're relatively simple building types. So that was a sector identified to be the first Revit, you know, BIM, you know, experimental sector. And uh, so a group of us went to training, came out of that two weeks later and uh, did, you know, started on some projects. And uh, really quickly, the the group that went obviously were the more technically adept people at the firm, and we realized just how much better in practice Revit was or was going to be. Um, you know, that was I think Revit eight when we started, eight point one when we started. 
if I recall. Um, and it's you know obviously come a long way, but we could just see such potential and knew that we need to get really good at this if we wanted to stay, um, you know, stay a market leader in, in our region. Um, so very slowly, we, you know, we then adopted standards, kind of generated them from our CAD standards, um, which is a weird process, and started sending more and more people to Revit training. And I would say by 20, you know, we endured a bad economy, but by about 2012, I, I think it's safe to say that 95% of our projects were in Revit. Um, and our structural engineers, uh, we, we don't have engineering in-house. We always hire that out. But our structural engineers were kind of on the same adoption rate. So from very early on, we were um, integrating with our structural team really well um, with their models. Uh, MEP was has, has been a laggard on that. But uh, And now, I mean, 10 years later, um, I, I, we're 100% Revit. I don't think there's a project we do that's not Revit in some way, shape, or form, um, except for legacy retail. Like I can think of one or two examples of really old retail projects that we did that we pull up the CAD files, and if it's a demising wall change, you know, we'll still do it in CAD. But that's about it. So, you know, it's it's gone from you know complete change of platforms in the time I've been there, and then seeing the difference early on, and now that you know everyone's been so good at it, the efficiency, the the our price structure, our fees have all been affected by how we use it. And, uh, you know, at first you think you got to charge more for it. Then you realize you can charge the same. And you, if you're good at what you're doing, you're going to have less work than you would if it was AutoCAD, um, especially when there's changes. So uh, financially, it, it benefited us as a firm. The, the models worked and the efficiency was, were all there. That was promised. So it became a, um, you know, pretty – it was just a really quick realization. And and the data was there to back it up really quickly. So um, when you show those kind of numbers to the owners of the firm, they they hop on board pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, we've, we haven't looked back. I did have a question for you since, you know, I know you're, you know, you've been in architecture for a while. Um, how have you seen COVID really change, like the designs of of buildings? How have you seen, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, companies having more open seating. What other changes have you kind of seen that have been a, that have been a good thing kind of inspired by by COVID? Well, you know, it's, it's you know, t- projects are so long that I, there's... There's some things that are, we haven't seen yet because they're still, you know, either either in construction or getting designed. Um, there's and we still don't know where we're going to end up. But the one in in different sectors that we operate, and so our workplace sector obviously is highly affected by COVID and and kind of the new way of working. Um, we we're getting a lot of projects right now where it's it's not um, office expansions, it's not shrink, they're not shrinking either. They're completely reconfiguring their their space, and it's not just furniture. It is you know, huddle rooms, phone booths, uh, different kinds of collaboration spaces, things like that, where, you know, it, it, it turns the old model on its head completely. And, and it is definitely sector or work type. Um, it, it varies on, on those kind of things. So if you are a, a individual knowledge worker, like a computer programmer, where, yes, there is a bit of collaboration, but, you know, you do your, your, project breakdown and you have individual tasks and it's heads down work that you're doing on your own you know that that adopts really well to work from home or work anywhere models so companies that do that we're you know we're adapting their offices to fit that there are some companies that have kind of a little bit of both they need some heavy collaboration that you know in person and then they also have a knowledge you know individual work heads down work so you know those offices kind of are a hybrid that have you know heads down rooms is you know kind of what we've been calling them where they're just you know individual rooms with a, a full workstation, dual screens, everything that works so that someone can go in there and concentrate and work on their heads down work. They don't necessarily have a desk. They just have that room where they need to, if they need to do work and you got to make sure you have enough of them to accommodate the whole team. Um, and then there are firm, you know, types of, of companies and the work that, that is done that's highly collaborative and there's very little heads down work. Um, we're, I think we're an example of that. We, the way our, the size of our projects, the, the way we work, it's highly collaborative and, uh, you know, very little real heads down work. Sure, we have to crunch on uh, to get the, the permit sets out, but that's still a high level of collaboration. We're sitting there, you know, just last week we had a, a pretty big deadline for one of our projects and the team was, you know, they all sit next to each other and they're just 
clicking away and asking questions of each other. And, and that dialogue going back and forth is so free flowing. It's nothing you can ever replicate virtually. Um, you know, the time it takes to initiate a call or, you know, it's a little weird to have like just a call going all the time. I know some people have tried that, but you know, it just, it's not the same as being there in person. So in those types of environments, it's making sure that the, those collaboration, the way that it's done is as maximized and efficient, but, still retaining desks and, you know, individual assignments, just making sure there's flexibility in the collaboration spaces. So it's kind of a, across the board, you know, different changes. And, you know, there's there's companies we're seeing that aren't doing anything. Um, and I think those are the ones that are going to be left behind. They're struggling with uh, attraction and retention the most. And uh, that's, you know, the great resignation or whatever they're calling it now. People are, are moving around a lot. And those kind of things, those the flexibility, the work from home, the, the different benefits is is so critical. And uh, the good companies are trying to keep up. And, uh, you know, there's going to be ones that get left behind. What part of Indiana are you in? Uh, I'm actually right outside of Indianapolis. I'm in Shelbyville. It's on oh, the okay. kind of southeast oh, yeah. side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, I had friends that until a couple of years ago, they lived up in um, uh, not 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 Carmel. Um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank now. What's another Fishers, really Noblesville. Fishers? They lived in Fishers. Fishers. They lived in Fishers. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they 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 liked it there. But he uh, he was an attorney and he got a, a offer he couldn't refuse from Seagate and moved out to Colorado Springs. <laughs> so, oh, nice. Heck or, yeah. Or, 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 or Fort Collins. Sorry, not the Springs, Fort Collins. Okay. Um, I think they might be in Boulder, but he didn't want to live in Boulder. He uh, he has a family, and <laughs> I don't know. He just didn't <laughs> like Boulder. But uh, um, so yeah, I was up there all the time. I mean, probably once a month we would go and, and hit the indie beer scene. And I would say this was like 1415 when Cincinnati was just starting to blossom. I think indie was a little bit ahead, and we had a lot of a lot of good times. I <laughs> I remember going to a sour beer fest in downtown. That's awesome. Indy. Whew, that was a. That was a day. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, dude. I haven't, uh, I have not been to a, an indie beer fest yet. I just moved back here, so I, I grew up in northern Indiana, moved out to Portland, and uh, I was working for uh, what was PPI Group before we got acquired by Topcon Solutions. And um, you know, about I guess middle of last year, uh, you know, during the co- the pandemic and everything, wife and I were talking, and we're like, you know what, let's just move back to indiana we're gonna be closer to family closer to a lot of friends there and uh you know we landed on shelbyville because we have a office actually in fishers Hmm. and dude i've been so excited this year because i've seen so many things coming up there's a bacon fest where (laughs) you eat bacon and drink whiskey i'm so excited for that oh my gosh tell me tell me when that is and i'm right is that the weekend that we're going camping at your house man (laughs) (laughs) that would be amazing uh they just moved it to june so i was like all right cool i'm watching out for that i've already got my tickets so i'm I'm excited for that when there's another a, a couple of beer fests and it's just it's awesome i'm so excited for the beer scene down there uh you know getting into this area but man it's a uh, that bacon fest i don't know if i could top it <laughs> i don't know <laughs> check this out man uh so seth filled me in on a beer scene a beer festival in downtown cincinnati where they discovered a strain of yeast i believe in an old uh, uh vat that was buried and they they dug it up and they they there was this uh You'll you probably tell the story about, a lot better. You're Seth. talking about oh gosh, it was that oh gosh, what is it? Missing oh. Missing Link Festival is what they call it, and the brewery that does it is Urban Artifact, which uh, is yes. nas- yeah nationally yes. known for their sour beers, and you know sour beers come from culture you know wild yeast and. Um, and and they're the, the guys that started, one of them happens to be an architect that was a couple years younger than me in school. Um, one of their hobbies is going around buildings in Cincinnati that were known to have breweries in it. And we can talk about the history of Cincinnati beer because it's incredible. Um, so there are a lot of buildings in Cincinnati that had breweries in them at some point. Um, so when they first started, they cultured yeast from all over the city. And they you know started making their beer based on good yeast that they found, um, including in their own building, um, which is a church in Northside. They found a really good yeast that their whole sour culture is based on. So um, they didn't know when they started out what kind of brewery they're going to be. But because the yeast they found made good sour beer, they became a sour brewery. Um, But anyways, they so they're known for this. And, uh, uh, you know, and and it wasn't too long. It was probably three years ago, four years ago. They were working on a project right near our office here and over the Rhine. Um, and they discovered a lagering tunnel um, under the the building where they were working, and and 
lagering tunnels, for those that don't know, were underground caverns that beer was stored in, lagered in, um, after it was brewed, but before it was ready to, ready to drink. And Cincinnati had such a, a huge beer scene back in the 1800s. You know, they dug, there's just tunnels everywhere, and they're discovering them all all the time. So this project, when it, it found it, it was no big surprise. Um, but the unique thing was they found a fermentation vessel in in the tunnel, and that's unusual. Usually it's it's for beer barrels and beer barrels only, but th- there is actually a, a wooden fermenting vessel. So um, the guys at Urban Artifact got a phone call. They came down and cultured the, the tunnel and the fermenting vessel and sent everything off to get tested at a lab in, in Chicago. And uh, they got the, the call a week later saying, hey, guys, we found brewer's yeast. Um, it's a strain that no one's ever seen before. Um, so they were really intrigued. So they cultured up some of that yeast, sent it back to them. And they started experimenting, making beer with it and, uh, you know, landed on a couple different styles that worked really well with that yeast, including a German golden ale. Um, and they did research on the building and discovered there was a brewery called F.A. Link Brewery that closed in 1859. So they were using yeast that had, didn't exist as far as they know since 1859 um, to make a beer style that would have been made back then. And it was a hit. And so what they did the next year was start a festival and they gave yeast to all the breweries in town or whoever wanted to participate to make beer in whatever, how, whatever they wanted to do, just use this yeast and then come to the festival and, and, you know, it'll a traditional beer festival serve it, have tables and, you know, serve the beer. Um, so the first year that was, that was a lot of fun. Second year was COVID. So it didn't happen. Um, they did a really small version of it last year, but this year on May 1st is, is going to be a big, a, a much bigger deal. Um, I think last I heard they got 15 to 20 breweries participating. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see what they do and um, what they what they uh, come up with because you know in terms of breweries the ones that are experimental the ones that are fun the ones that you know push the envelope are the ones that I, I enjoy the most. Just I may not like all the beer they they make but I want to try it and you know they have a pickle beer and some people oh that sounds disgusting other people like that's great i I happen to love it i think it goes great with hamburgers but you know who would think to try a pickle beer um those guys do so you know they're 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 a great brewery and and that that festival is going to be pretty amazing because you know there's breweries that you never would even think would experiment in that space are going to be there with their beer so we'll see what happens yeah dude no that's awesome i did not know about that brewery actually um it's funny on a couple i think probably four or five episodes ago I found a beer, and the reason I was really excited and kind of drawn to it was that it was actually um, found in, like, ancient pottery in, in an archaeological archaeological dig. And in it, they actually found, you know, yeast, and it was brewer's yeast, and they actually made it, you know, into a beer. That, that mm-hmm. you know, to me is exciting. That's super mm-hmm. amazing to get into that part of history. Yeah. And to, to have it locally, though, yeah. that that's something else, dude. That's awesome. Well, if you're going to... If you're going to have beer history, Cincinnati is a good place to do it. Um, you know, it, it's if you want to talk about the beer history here, I can. I mean, it's uh, it might take a while because there's so much. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I've been I've been reading the same books, the Cincinnati Brewing History by um, Mike Morgan. And uh, he has two books on, on the subject. And there's a couple other Cincinnati Brewing History books. But it's just incredible what what ha- has happened here over the years um, in the beer world and calling it the beer capital uh, of the world at one point was a completely accurate name. That's amazing, dude. I would have never thought of, like, you know, when I think of Cincinnati, historical beer is just not something that came to mind. And I had like a, <laughs> a snobbish attitude about beer having lived in Portland. I was like, no, I lived you know, <laughs> in Portland. Like we had microbrewers and then having gone down there and, you know, I've probably been to 10 different breweries in, in Cincinnati now, what, what there's 80 within a 40 miles, you know, yeah. 40 mile radius or something. Yep, there's, there's an insane. Yeah. And they're, they're all great quality. And on top of that, they're all like, um, super beautiful spaces. Uh, there, a lot of them have great beer gardens. Like it's not just a hole in the wall. Like, yeah, we're a brewery where you see in a lot of industrial areas. They're, they're like really thought out spaces. Um, you know, a lot of them pay homage like North row to the, to the historical aspect. Um, and then, you know, they're just all fun places to hang out. I have not had a bad experience at a brewery in Cincinnati, um, and and I look forward to many more uh, drinking sessions while I'm out there. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the you know the Cincinnati was German, very heavily German, which I think is a huge influence on why there's so much beer made here. 
The city was, I think it was founded in 1788, right on the Ohio River. Um, and the first brewery um, opened 18 years later um, in the early, early 1800s. Um, and they've been making beer there ever since. And, you know, the, the one fact that just astounds me to this day is the, the peak of beer production in Cincinnati was in 1890. And uh, let me pull up my notes so I get this exactly right. Um, so in 1890, they were making um, in the city of Cincinnati, all the breweries here, they produced 1.1 million barrels of beer in 1890. Um, the, the regional population was about 344,000 people. Um, and it wasn't just like, you know, it wasn't the traditional, like what we think of as breweries. Now, these microbrewers that are just distributing locally, a lot of these, these beers were going worldwide. They were distributed nationally. These are, were major brewing operations for their day. And, you know, 1.1 million barrels of beer, let's put that in context. Um, today as or actually 2021 last year, um, every brewery in Ohio, including Budweiser, Miller, and the other macro breweries, plus all the craft breweries produced 1.3 million barrels of beer. So in, in 1890, Cincinnati alone produced only 200,000 barrels less of beer. <laughs> Just it's staggering how much beer that is. Wow. Yeah. And then, and then we like to drink the beer here too. Um, that same decade, um, the average beer consumption nationally was 16 gallons per person. Um, I don't know what it is today, but I, it's probably not that much different when you average everything out. In Cincinnati, it was 40 gallons for every man, woman, and child in Cincinnati. Good Lord. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big offset. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, this is this place lives and lives and breeds beer. Um, and the beer gardens, you know, there's all these historic beer gardens that that have been, you know, famous throughout the years. Like uh, there, there's one that really was a, a functional beer garden until Prohibition. Um, and uh, but have you ever heard of Boss Cox and kind of the, the the mafia stuff from Chicago and Cincinnati back in the early 1900s? Um, the the White Sox scandal was um, you know controlled by that. Well, that was all hatched here at that beer garden. All those people worked there or, or visited there and made all their political dealings underground at the beer garden. So, you know, I uh, you know there's a lot of that, that kind of history too and. And um, that that building where that beer garden was is coming back as a beer garden. Um, Mad Tree Brewery, which is one of the bigger breweries here in town there. You know, Rheingeist is the biggest one, um, biggest ma microbrewery. Mad Tree is, is, I think, a close second. And they bought the, the property and have lovingly restored the, the buildings. The beer garden, you know, has been turned into parking lots over the years, but they've recreated as much of it as they could. And it opens, I think, in just a couple of weeks. And it's going to be incredible to to be in that space with so much history and, you know, so much uh, so much meaning to Cincinnati and, and really the country in some ways. Architecture is, it's an art, right? And and when when a building is, is it has that history or it's um, designed in that way, people love it. Like it, it creates that space where people want to go to it and like it, it just it's different right when you can kind of tie that in and i love how um we're seeing that kind of shift again uh even in today's architecture from what's normal into you know just these 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 different buildings either you know i have this uh distillery about 35 minutes down the road they started out as a brewery and they kind of morphed into into a distillery and they're out of Brown County and they've used a lot of like the the Brown County theme in the architecture they're building, the way that the trees, like the wood that they've used, it's it's beautiful. And when you can kind of tie that to the architect, I think it's 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 really something else within architecture. And again, kind of mentioning back to that shift, I think it's like we're seeing that, you know, that people are interacting with that architecture a lot and and the art in it is really kind of i mean it's beautiful right but it's also varying in in so many ways in the different areas and the history that you have and i think to be a part of that to see it in person is awesome i think um uh in construction we get lost in in the meaning of architecture quite a bit like <laughs> in construction like working in the constructability aspect of things we 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 as you know in the, as builders get lost in it. And the reason is because we always blame the architect for everything that's going on, going wrong with the project, but also <laughs> because we don't appreciate design until it's completed. Now, uh, something like a brewery is something that just hits home and you immediately recognize the value and the worth 
of the of the planning of the space and and how everything ties together. Um, you know, not to sound you know sacrilegious here, but a brewery to a lot of us in the construction industry is almost like uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a like, yeah, it's a special thing to us. You're and the way everything ties together. Beer? I'm in. <laughs> I mean, yes. No, it, 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 hold, it definitely holds a a, a different a, a different vibe. Like if you go into a brewery in a strip mall as opposed to a brewery that was well thought out. And you can tell that the, the, you know, the design team actually puts him forth. Yes. Yeah. It makes it, it makes it. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, you said, you mentioned the details. I, that, that is so apparent here in town with the old, old buildings that were breweries and some that still function as breweries, just the detailing and the ornamentation, um, you know, the stuff a, a classic, uh, a, a classicist would love to see. But, you know, in, in you, ornamentation, I'm talking about the, the carved stone, you know, carved stone flower what, what pediments. Things and, you're not going to see today that are all handmade. Right, right. They had beer barrels and, and wheat and hops, and those were carved into those stone things. But um, the, the you know, it, I, I can tie this back to, um, you know, basically technology and, and how it's changing the industry. What we're seeing now that you know we're modeling things and there is you know 3D printing, but there is just more attention paid to this. This um, you can design very complex systems that don't take any more time to to iterate and generate um, as just drawing a line. So you know you look at at um, a good example is like the Barclays Center in in Brooklyn, where the skin of the building, every panel is different, is a different shape, but the per you know the way they did it, the way they engineered it, it was all parametric and those shapes were generated from the formulas that drove the the parametric that that whole the whole thing was a you know just a, a ton of different formulas i'm not sure what program actually was used to do it but um that was all done couldn't have been done without a computer and couldn't have been done without today's technology and the way that we can interact with our uh with the things that we're designing so i i think you're going to see and we are seeing it obviously barclays you're going to see this a lot more where some of that stuff might come back in a, a new way or a shape or a form because you can do it now um as cost effectively as it was before and that's really what's always held it back is just cost. And if now we can automate that process or make that process a lot easier to design and manufacture it, well, then everyone's going to start doing it. So I'm 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 looking forward to see what what we're gonna what the that that side of things is going to really come up with and and what, how buildings are going to change as a result. We actually had a, a great conversation about this very aspect of it. We were talking about tying in the historical. Um, and wanting to focus on those finer details, but replicate them in a more modern sense with uh, um, Flora Lou from uh, Viatechnic. In the past, uh, she was talking about this software called, I think it's like Design Magic X or something, where you can scan something, put, put it in that software. It'll create a mass, mm -hmm. um, and you can essentially reverse engineer it to 3D print a mold for it mm -hmm. so that you can recreate the old historical features and actually just add more detail and give a historic vibe uh, to something today in, in less time. So whereas something probably took, you know, you know, 10 years to build with all the ornate detail we can build in, you know, three and a half uh, and still capture that same amount of detail. Yeah. The technology is, is it's, it really is amazing now. Right. Yeah. And there's so many different software packages and hardware packages that are doing that. It's not just one group is doing it. It's 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 past the cutting edge. And we're seeing that that growth, that hockey stick growth right now of all of that technology, the amount of point clouds I get now on projects to, you know, for as built and the amount of, of, you know, fully integrated data before we even start the project is just, I've never seen it before. And I love it um, because it allows us to get a lot more data a lot sooner and informs the design a lot, lot so much better. Um, we avoid common issues and coordination issues further down that, you know, either we we miss because these buildings are complex or they're so far, you know, buried in the, the pile of data that you never see it when you get it at the end of the project. So, you know, we're, we're getting better buildings. We're getting better designs uh, as a result of all this tech. And, uh, you know, I think we're you know, a third of the way through this revolution, the digital revolution, construction is still very analog. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in the change right now, but I think we have more to go than we've been where we started. And, you know, I, I the rest of my career is going to be just watching with awe as all that stuff comes out. Dude, I, I completely agree. And I'm, I'm still in awe of our, our, our industry. Like, you know, when we start talking about, you know, prefabrication, modular construction, um, that right there was a piece that, you know, Joey and I talked about a lot within the past couple years and how it's been changing our industry and 
how you know building better, more precisely, accurately, being able to prefabricate and just put a lot of things on site. Um, I think when you start to combine that though with you know how our industry again is kind of shifting, utilizing some of that technology, but also tying back to the historical you know ties that we have or, or the workflows, the the effects, you know whether it's hand carved wood or it's something you know placed or <clears throat> essentially 3D printed, you know the recreations that we can do today again, kind of going back to that amount of time that it takes. I'm excited to see, just as you said, how this continues to push forward as we push further into, you know, the prefabrication, modular construction, the generative design. Joey and I talked about generative construction, you know, how we see all of this, you know, the dynamos or all of those other um, softwares that are coming out to help with that design and getting that metric data really customized and, and to where we need it. Uh, I, I'm super excited for it, man. I love being in this industry. I love seeing these buildings that are coming, you know, and, and kind of being built, whether in the United States or all over the world. I love seeing some of the, you know, Dubai buildings. Obviously, those things are ridiculously Crazy. expensive. Yeah, dude, ridiculously expensive. But even even the architecture here at home, Chicago, right? Recently, they did those aqua towers. And mm -hmm. I was obsessed with those buildings and the way that they kind of emulated, you know, just water flowing, the flow that that building has, the way that the that the wind whips around it. I mean, it looked something straight out of a sci-fi movie when I first saw it, like, you know, the renderings. I'm like, that's that's kind of nuts, but you see it and it is just so gorgeous. And, you know, the time that it took them to, to build something like that, obviously, much less than in previous years, you know, mm -hmm. I, I've I've really, I have a really big thing for Chicago architecture. Um, getting back to the original architecture of, you know, Burnham and Root, who were some of the, you know, original architects to get the first skyscraper in Chicago, you know, kind of how they got it into where it is now. Dude, I, I think, you know, seeing the way that these buildings, that these cities shift with these trends and the trends in, in technology and construction it's it's awesome i yeah like i said i can't i can't i can't stress enough i love being a part of it and i'm i'm right there with you man i'm going to i'm going to be here for my career watching things change and hoping to be a part of it and see you know what i can get into <laughs> whether it's you know scan to bim it's the scan verification workflows uh i i i'm super excited to where this goes well, I wouldn't be a true Cincinnati if I didn't uh, say that Chicago architecture wouldn't exist without us. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, uh, the Ingalls building here in, in town, which was just renovated into a boutique hotel, was the first reinforced concrete high-rise building in the world. And uh, that the, the engineer that did it went on to Chicago and started building skyscrapers all over Chicago and, and worked for, worked with Sullivan and Root, worked with um, you know Burnham and Root and Sullivan and all those guys. Um, yeah, if it yeah. wasn't for his experiments he did here, that that wouldn't have happened or it would have happened differently. Yeah, man, history is is so amazing. And the way that architecture ties, you know, all these different cities together. I mean, uh, the way that they did Jackson Park for the World's Fair, I thought mm -hmm. that was amazing. Right. And they brought in so many different experts from different areas <laughs> to really bring that together. And dude, I, I honestly, I, I almost wish that the world still kind of did that. I mean, obviously we can look in LinkedIn and on the internet, but I, I love the idea of the, these countries competing instead of, you know, I, I love the Olympics. I love all of the things that we do, but competing in terms of architecture, making these really beautiful buildings, these structures or these, you know, obviously Dubai is on another level. I, we can't compete with that. <laughs> But, you know, it's I, I, I love the thought of those world fairs. It, it's always drawn me to, you know, architecture and the way that the world kind of works and bringing these different experts together. I went out to Spokane and was able to see, you know, their site where they held their world's fair. And just the tie that the architecture, you know, has to that history makes you feel like it makes you feel something else, right? Like you're a part of it to see that, to, to see that level of detail and, and to, uh, I guess, you know, be able to touch it. It's something else. Just don't don't think of the book uh, Devil in the White City when you think about Chicago World's Fair. <laughs> I don't know, have, you have you read that book? I love that book, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It captures some of the feeling you have, but 
you know, for those, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but uh, there was also some some murders that happened during. Oh the yeah, very film. very dark times. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was by an architect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. Man, yeah. you give me some uh, interesting things when I was, uh, you know, you go out to the Chicago River and out there to Lake Michigan, and after you read that book, you're like, oh man, <laughs> oh dude. <laughs> Oh, you're always adding stuff to my reading list when we talk, Seth. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is a great book. That is a great book for anyone looking. It, it it's, really a, it's a thriller architecture. It kind of has a little bit of everything in it. And it's true. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, that dude was a genius, too. That's mm-hmm. um, insane, but genius. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Seth, dude, it's been awesome having you on. Like, seriously, I've, I've loved the, the flow of the conversation here. Um, we could definitely go on for days about beer and, and obviously construction architecture. I'd love to have you on for another episode, man. Maybe, you know, we'll talk in another six months or a year and kind of see what you guys have, you know, gotten into with the shift of technology and, you know, talk, actually, we got to meet in person. First mm-hmm. of all, God, we're so close. We got to meet in person <laughs> and have a beer, I think in Cincinnati, cause I've, you've, you've definitely piqued my interest, especially with the, uh, <laughs> You know the the sour conversations and the historical yeast. I'm I'm down, dude. I'm down. I'm so down to try that. Well, well, let's plan a uh, a meetup. Uh, we'll do that this summer or early uh, late spring. Uh, we'll we'll plan some kind of fun BIM event. We'll invite everybody to come out and drink with us. You know that said, I think it'd be really cool for us to do an episode like solely on the Cincinnati beer scene. Like this has been a great conversation, but we barely scratch the surface oh, yeah. yeah barely yeah. yeah that that sounds like a great idea i love both you know both an episode on that and the the uh, get together at a brewery that i think both of those are great ideas and yeah just let me know i'm i'm, I'm here i'll be ready and i'll i'll give you I'll, I'll, i can be your tour guide as well i can take you around all right <laughs> heck yeah i would love that do you think we could get uh old mike uh, morgan you know anybody have a uh, his contact yeah one of my um, employees is his best friend um, they were in oh. each other's wedding. So, yeah, I have a pretty good contact. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I drank with him at Missing Link Festival last year. So, <laughs> nice. Yeah, he's he is. Uh, and, and one of my co-ops this year actually had him as a professor at, at University of Cincinnati. He took my taught a beer class at UC. So which didn't why, we didn't have beer classes when I was in college. Come on. But now they do. So. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be I would love to get him on and, and to talk about it. I think he would enjoy that a lot. Perfect. Yeah, we're gonna have to uh, dive more into this missing link. We'll figure out a date and yeah, dude, that sounds amazing. Like I was just about, I was just looking that up. I'm like, <laughs> I gotta check that out. Well, this was a lot of fun, guys. I really enjoyed talking with you, and and yeah, let's uh, let's make this all happen. Yeah, that all sounds right. great. Thank you, Seth. I appreciate your time today. Yep. Have a good one.